Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, my guest today is Stephen Berry, who begins his new book, Counting the Dead, with these two paragraphs. This is a book about death and data, or more specifically, about the dead as data. The dead and the formerly living are not the same. The formerly living built the Parthenon and the Brooklyn Bridge. They also made brutal wars and ghastly decisions we are still struggling to live down. Revered or reviled, the formerly living have always counted because we still talk about them. Loved or hated, they built our world. This is a book about a group that did not count for a very long time, the actual dead, the great ghostly horde who made their mark not in their living but in their collective dying, producing patterns of mortality that prove critical to the systemization of public health, casual reporting, and human rights. Stephen Berry is a historian of mortality, which crafty practices at the University of Georgia, where he is Gregory Professor of the Civil War era. He has authored or edited six books, Counting the Dead is his latest. Stephen Berry, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, uh, as I was saying to you earlier, I was looking at your webpage to make sure I got some of the important facts of your bio and was very arrested by your, I take it, self-description as a historian of mortality. What is a historian of mortality? And is this a growth industry? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think it I think it should be. I actually think all historians are um, struggling to make meaning of the collective passing of people who are no longer here. I think that's and, so that is so that is so that's such a brilliant that truth. Yes, we're all we're all historians of the mortality. And and it's just our failure to recognize ourselves as such. Yeah. Um, that we're all death watchers actually. We keep <laughs> we keep death at a at a remove. Um, we try to den- deny it, but knowledge of our own mortality um, is one of the things that fundamentally makes us human. And so, an historian of mortality is someone who just focuses on uh, that essential aspect of our hum- collective humanity. Mm-hmm. Um. How has this expressed itself? So this is your sixth book, seventh book. Uh, and and how is this? Is this the latest? I, I, I love, uh, admire people whose books are chapters in a very long book. So is right. this the latest chapter, a sort of short uh, a summation of some of the themes that have been going on in the long book that you've been writing? I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I, I was a strange death-obsessed little kid. <laughs> I, I tended to like like old things, old uh-huh. people. Um, I was the kind of kid who, you know, hid under the table when the older adults were talking. Uh-huh. Um, I liked things that had age on them. Yeah. Um, they had survived something. They had a little sadness too, but also uh-huh. an enduring spirit. Um, and I sort of knew that I was that kind of, I was going to be that kind of a kid. Yeah. And exactly what you say we take our peculiar mental makeup and at our best, we try to turn it into something useful if we're going to be death obsessed anyway, right? And so what has my career been except a giant rationalization, professionalization, even monetization 
of my peculiar mental makeup. And so it began, and I began my life as a Civil War historian, because you've got 750,000 dead people, um, half of them on the wrong side of a great moral question. And that's a pool of sadness I couldn't help but stare into for a long period. But I gradually realized that it wasn't the Civil War per se, but mortality itself that I'd been chasing all of those years. Hmm. Um, did you always like graveyards? Yes, very much. And I find I mean, them. Um, so they said of Lincoln that melancholy dripped from him when he walked. Yeah. Um, and we always suppose that that means that he was a sad person and a depressed person. But really, he became someone who could feel the nation's pain. And mm -hmm. so that core, what we might regard as a weakness or a burden, um, actually became a way of seeing. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think of I, I think of graveyards as, as exactly the same as being in touch with um, something whose denial is foolhardy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, can you could you? I, I think I know what you mean, but could you yeah. uh, could you expound on that? It's denial is well, foolhardy, right? So um, we're born obviously mortal. Of all the things that nature ever invented. She never invented immortality. Um, death makes the whole thing work. So if we think of evolution, we're in a war, always an endless war, uh, for against parasites and plagues and uh, predators. Cell and, degeneration. Yeah. And, and so we take our turn on Earth and then we have to quit this Earth so that a next generation can, be, can evolve, be born, um, and do a better job and stay one step ahead of all of these things. And so nature's first invention actually was death. Death is necessary. Death should be seen as uh, the handmaiden to life. Uh, and I think in a death-denying culture, as I sometimes worry we are, we keep death at such a remove that it scares us, terrifies us. We quarantine it behind a gauzy hospital curtain. We outsource. <laughs> are dying, uh, you know, to other professionals because we can't quite face it when actually we would do better, far better in so many ways to have a more intimate relationship with our own mortality. I don't think students are ever more shocked or were when I was teaching, when I would explain sort of the facts of de death and dying, even in the early 20th century, right? Uh, the, the, what, the people dying at home, which is... Right. Uh, which it was so strange to them. Still, now it's become strange. Uh, the fact the body stayed there, right, uh, was in the house. That all these sorts of things, all the the. It's funny because uh, we tend. I, I I've been thinking how lately I tend to um, really say, "Oh, well, aren't Jewish funeral practices wonderful?" And they are, mm -hmm. um, but in the early twentieth century, most white. Anglo-Saxon Protestants had something a, a lot closer to Jewish Orthodox Jewish funeral practices than we have now. That's um, right. And that's part of the, that's a, the acceptance of death and dying as part of life. Absolutely. We used to see each other all the way into the world and all the way out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, Stephen Prother, historian of American religion, I think at Boston College, I recently heard him talking about this amazing uh, cultural change that no one talks about, which is the turn to cremation. 
Right. Uh, and, uh, and he's saying, yeah, look, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that you have to notice this is a trim that funeral practices, funeral practices are at the heart of any culture and that's that right. we we've completely changed ours in like 25 years. And yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, well, grave goods were one of our first artifacts, right? Right. Um, and it's one of the first signs of humanity that yeah. we give the, we, we give the dead our things that, that we bury them not to be rid of them, but because they have another journey to go on. And so death is the foundation then of religion as well. Um, the belief in an afterlife. So when you fall asleep, that's like a little death, but we don't die, we dream. And so the natural supposition um, of ancient man is that when we go to sleep forever, we enter a sort of dream world where we'll need things um, and where we will live again. And so the belief in an afterlife is actually a function of the way the brain works um, in life. Um, and so all culture, you know, Stonehenge, Cahokia, the Great Pyramid, um, all of it is related to our mortality um, and to the idea of a journey beyond this world. Yes, and, and also it's related to then the anything that the, any grave the leakies might find in Kenya uh, right. from 40,000 years ago. I was thinking, just when you were saying that, I was thinking uh, one of my favorite mil- memoirs of World War II by George McDonald Fraser, quartered safe out here. He's like a 17, 18 year old soldier in Burma in 1945 in the 14th, in the British army, the 14th army. And one of his, uh, one of their, his mates in his squad is killed in action and they bury his body and they lay out his stuff on the ground cloth and they all swap. One person swaps their rifle for his rifle. One of them swaps his right. piala, his teacup for his teacup. And then they bury him with the stuff. Right. They don't all put it back into the quartermaster store. I'm thinking this is a 17 year old uh, from Carlisle in Cumbria in Cumberland. Uh, he didn't learn this, is, but this could be a, a ritual by Neanderthals, right? Or you know, a Homer, or or, or, or even earlier. Right. Uh, no one taught him that in right. grammar school. <laughs> it right. just somehow they reverted to that. It's just it, it's this is these are old old ways and that are built into us somehow. And it and the, are the foundation of not just human culture, but of humanity itself. Our humanity inheres in how we treat the least of these, our brothers and sisters. Um, and that extends especially to the dead. And this is really the, the beating heart of this book. Um, Counting the Dead is about humanity. So, right. but it it's a strange way to get there for people, especially who are coming to listen to this. It makes, it made sense to me when I was reading it, but you begin with like, we should probably begin with a brief history of quantification, um, right. be, which turns out to be, yeah, it's an extraordinarily important conti- historical development. So what's, if you're giving a brief historic, uh, history of quantification to an uh, undergraduate, uh, what is it? Yeah, exactly right. So um, statistics are central to how a state sees. Um, You cannot have a functioning bureaucracy without data, but actually um, counting, math, trigonometry, um, calculus, all of those things um, had to be invented. And in inventing all of those things, almost all of the data that we have in cuneiform um, on the willow sticks that, you know, used to be the accounting system of the exchequer and, and parliament, all of it is related to debt and money and, and payment because our first God is manna, right? And so no one thought to count the dead. Even when you do a census, 
early on, you're counting the living, but you're really counting their chickens, you're counting their acreage, you're counting um, their you know, young, young farm men animals. Able to able to go to war. Right, right. Um, the assessment is all about what the living is doing or what the living might do. And so it took us a very long time, not only to invent quantification and uh, a science of statistics, uh, but for the state then to bother to count the people who don't count, for, <laughs> um, which is the dead. And even when we say, oh, you're history or you're dead to me, we mean you don't count, right? Mm-hmm. The point of the book is the dead can count, do count, did count, and made a fundamental, once we started to count them, the patterns of our collective living were laid bare by the patterns of our collective dying. And we could actually have eyes on the problem, problems of public health, human rights, and casualty reporting in war. But until then, we could never see the patterns because we'd never collected the data. So what I realized is that there was a considerable, uh, there was a, a considerable intellectual abstraction that had to be gone through to start to apprehend the importance of counting the dead and we take it so we take it so for granted now i think that we right. can't make that abstraction that that leap so who is making that leap and and why yeah so some one of the early figures in america is this guy lemuel chatuk so lemuel chatuk was born in 1793 in new england which was a paradise for cons- for consumption lots of consumptives um, in New England. Tuberculosis. So, tuberculosis, yeah. right. Um, so his mother dies of, of TB when he's four, and then he quickly loses his father and two of his sisters to consumption. So I don't think it takes a biographer's leap of logic to see that this early pioneer in American public health is very, very concerned about early death. But the way he goes at it is this breakthrough that you were talking about, where he says, okay, then I need to go to the bills of mortality, which were early versions of death death statistics that were kept by the city, usually in the form of, okay, where's everybody buried? So we buried somebody else here, we buried somebody else there. But um, he lives in Boston, and so he goes and studies the death records, and he finds that they're terrible. But what records there are reveal that in Boston at that time, this would have been in the 1840s, Uh, life expectancy is actually declining. It's especially declining among the urban poor um, and especially among uh, black citizens of Boston. And so what he sees in numbers is not these one-off tragedies that a doctor might see um, or that a family might experience, but he's seeing death in the aggregate. He's seeing the patterns of mortality um, for the first time. And that is... Uh, technological and, uh, as you say, conceptual breakthrough. And he has to go through a struggle to improve. Could you describe his, his struggle, Shattuck's struggle for better statistics? That's a lot of aspirations. Um, but that's, it's, it sounds silly. Right. Uh, but well, but, it, but, it, but it, it's not silly at all. It's, it's, it's literally life or death. It is literally life or death. And so the big data project of the 19th century is the census. And so he says, okay, if we're going to have eyes on death, then the census needs to be a mortality survey, as well as a survey of property, as well as a survey of demography, of of living citizens. But at that time, in 1840, um, the American census was just uh, taken at the level of the household. 
So it's like as a data unit, the deepest the United States government could see was a, was a household, which had a male, usually male, head of house, and then enumerated with tick marks after that male name were, were you know, any enslaved servants, uh, tick marked by age or children or, uh, you know, married or not married, but all of them are tick marks. Only the head of the household gets a name. Um, and what Shatak says is, no, 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 no. We have to collect data on every man, woman, and child in America. And he meant including the enslaved population, which the South was not going to want. But we can talk about that later. So working with the superintendent of the census, uh, Joseph Kennedy, they essentially oversee one of the great data revolutions um, and un misunderstood or ununderstood data revolutions of the 19th century. And they take down the name, at least of among whites, every uh, man, woman, and child and their ages. And the other thing that he adds to the 1850 census um, is the first ever public health survey in the history of the United States, the mortality census of 1850. So you connect this, you said earlier, it's a technological change. Say it's, it might, uh, I mean, I, is high school, I've, I've often wondered, is high school a technology? I guess it is. High school is certainly a revolutionary cultural transformation the way it creates teenagers. Um, right. Is this a technology? I guess it is. Um, yes. and it's, 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 but it's certainly a conceptual breakthrough that leads to a, a profound reconceptualization of the dead. Um, yes. And you connect it to one of the most important things that has ever happened. Right. What is, and what is that? Right. So, and the, the the book is really about the most important thing that ever happened that nobody ever talks about, yeah. um, on par with the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs or Columbus sticking his toe in the Bahamas. I think this is that big. Yeah. Um, the global doubling of human life expectancy between 1850 and 1950. So, if you can think about it, relatively yesterday, yeah, we doubled the length of our lives. So, Even by historian standards, let alone geological standards. Abso it's, absolutely right. <laughs> Absolutely right. For thousands of years, we yeah. were dying at an average age of maybe 30. Um, and relatively yesterday, it became 60, then 70, then 80. And most of the gains in the United States are so late. They're between 1890 and 1950. Um, by at 1915, you've only got maybe 15% of the population that's living to the biblical age of three score and 10. Right. Um, so most of our culture, most of our psychology is built on early death. Mm -hmm. um, and so the magnitude and importance of doubling the length of our lives, every growth in GDP um, is directly related to the way we live now, which is to say much longer and more fruitful lives. We have, now, more, time, also, we have more time to think and work. More time this, to, to, to think, work, mature, yep. grow up, um, yep. and and be happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want to quote yeah. you about this because this is something that has irked me since I was a grad student. Uh, you say, foreshortened lifespans don't just mean that people live less, they live differently. In the 70s, following Philippe Aurier, a lot of people spilt a lot of ink and took up a lot of journal space trying to prove that certainly early Americans didn't really give a damn when their kids died. This right. was just part of life. Right. You know, I could cite chapter and verse. They're respected scholars. They're so full of crap. They're um, so full they, of crap. They, they took Arya, who was wrong, 
And then they took a lot of primary evidence and they had the RAA mold and they shoved it in there like with a trowel and a press to try to get reality to conform to this uh, theoretical framework. And it doesn't yeah. conform. It doesn't conform uh, at all. It doesn't I, conform. I, I did um, just out of curiosity, I took the first five American presidents who lived to an average age of 80, which is an age that we wouldn't get to in the United States until roughly 2004. Yeah. And then I measured the average uh, age at death of their children, yeah. and it was 26, right? which was then the national average. And each one of those broke the man's heart. Yeah, I mean, that that's a great thing, because every one of them... And I'm just thinking about the first three. Yeah. When they experienced death in their life, uh, Lawrence, I mean, for one thing, George Washington doesn't become George Washington without, at least I figured this out, five people dying. Right. And they all broke his heart. Right. Um, uh, a, uh, from his father to, to Lawrence's half brother and so on. Uh, even the daughter who died of an, a stepdaughter who died of an epileptic seizure in his arms. These people, this all broke his heart. And even and, Washington's letters, you can tell that. And Thomas Jefferson almost became incapable and almost died when his wife died. So you right. have to wonder, this this idea of sort of the disposable culture of human life to which everyone was inured, it doesn't pass the smell test even for, for the best documented people that we have. Absolutely right. And it goes back to the conversation we had about um, death and the way we treat the dead and the way we remember them as being the foundation of our culture. Yeah. of history itself and of humanity itself. Right. Um, and so, of course, what selected the first five presidents for greatness wasn't their titanic minds, but their unbelievably robust bodies. Right. But what it meant to live that long was that you buried a lot of friends and you yep. buried a lot of family um, and you went to the grave to join them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, certainly in Washington's case, he's extraordinarily aware of his mortality the fact that he is the eldest of all the children but the last survivor um and he's haunt he's haunted by the grim king as he refers to death all the time in his letters and he well, and he's not and he's not the only one well we talk about it now as survivors guild right so that yeah. if you have a you know uh, a troop of soldiers the ones who survive don't exactly feel lucky they feel a little haunted right um they miss their friends, of course, but they also wonder, you know, why me? Right. So a part of them is in the grave always with, with their buddies. Yeah. Um, and the same thing happens for the few who did live into old age is that they have a survivor guilt. And we also, then we've got the sort of the, the, the thing which still, I think some historians still have this idea in their head that parents regard children as sort of economic units right and that if you lose a few at the age at six months well you can make more right you know and we'll have more economic units to support us in our old age right. um that that is just you know that is just it's maddening but it, it, it doesn't see i mean i don't think c4 explosives will pry it out of people's heads <laughs> right <laughs> but not why would nature ever um create a creature who that doesn't care for its young yeah, right. <laughs> so they, they wouldn't have their heart broken to, to, to lose a child. Yeah, yeah. We we see that we we see mourning in, you know, in other animals, um, you know, in in elephants, 
mm-hmm. you know, especially. Um, and they'll even, they'll go to the places not merely where their dead are buried, but sometimes where they died. Mm-hmm. And those become sacred places in their memory. We, we are programmed to grieve. Mm-hmm. So this then back to the, the race, um, this is a story of, of, of length and mortality of, uh, of, of, but that is often told as a medical story, but you're right. saying is a bureaucratic story. Right. And, and so if we return to the first ever federal yeah. health survey, which is the 1850, uh, mortality census, and it's bad data in a lot of ways, the way they collected the data was atrocious. I mean, how they, were... How'd they do that? <laughs> so you can imagine it's schedule three of the 1850 census. So they asked the questions about demography, who lives here, uh, you know, the government guide knocks on the door. All right. Who lives here? How many kids, you know, whatever. And then they do the, the property survey, which includes the enslaved survey essentially is survey two. And then they move on to this health survey. And so they say, did anyone die here in the last year? If so, of what? Well, you're talking to Farmer Ted. I mean, <laughs> you know, this guy doesn't, he's not a doctor. Um, and, you know, doing this as a as kind of a response survey, first of all, who's going to answer the door to a government employee and say, oh, yeah, sure, I murdered somebody last week. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Or, um, you know, my unwed daughter died on the birthing couch two months ago, and I'm still grieving her. That, you know, Farmer Ted is not going to share those kinds of details. And then he's not a diagnostician, right? He doesn't know exactly what anybody died of. So in the 1850 mortality census, you have people dying of herpes, which is, I mean, that is a monster case of herpes or yeah. uh, dying of menstruation or masturbation. You know, I, I, I don't I think there's pe- people just die of a fever. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's a lot of people die of fever. So, well, and, and so they have people dying with they have people dying of worms. They didn't die yeah. of worms, they died with worms. Almost all of the enslaved <laughs> had worms because they're walking around barefoot among all these helmets. Yeah. Um, and so, and hookworm and whipworm and, and whatnot. Yeah. So, and it's it's bad data in some ways. Now, you can glean things from it. So, for instance, in 1850, it turns out the murder capital of America is California which makes absolute sense. They just discovered gold there. It has a, you know, gender ratio of seven to one male. It's very mm-hmm. under-policed, a lot of greed. Um, of course, it's going to be the, the murder capital of America. So some of the data is good. But the, the larger story of the book is that however bad the data might be, it's big data and it's driving a data industry that gets bigger, better, fast. Exactly. We could call this a bureaucratic emergent order. Right. Uh, w- once you've set this rabbit running, all the hounds are going to chase it. And then and this base is going to lead to the death certificate. Right. And, and, and so just as an example, by 1880, which is the nadir of race relations in the United States, I mean, you know, Jim Crow system, segregation are all at their lynching is all at their height in the 1880s. But in the census department, they're starting to make disease maps because they figured out that place, not race, is a better indicator of health outcomes. And it's because the data is demanding they get over themselves if they want to save themselves. They're going mm-hmm. to have to get over their racism because we turn out to all be in this together. Um, you know, the, the microbe, a tiny germ, recognizes our common humanity even when we don't. And so their data is leading them to necessary conclusions that they couldn't see otherwise. Um, and the 1890 mortality census is tabulated by the American Tabulating Machine Company. That's IBM. 
<laughs> right? So, so yeah. this data is driving a data industry getting bigger, better, fast, and will ultimately create the supercomputer. And so the and the collection of the data then pushes title. Well, we can say it's a technological advancement to to collect the data itself, but then it pushes what we think of the hard technology, you right. know, of of the computer of the adding machine, and then eventually of the digital adding machine, the digital computer, and so on. Right, and that, and that's how they finally figure out that you can't do a you know uh, a house to house survey to create a decent system of of federal health. Um, you're going to have to have a physician overseeing national death certification system, uh, which uh, comes in 1900 um, and rolls out in the states, you know, in various years. But now um, the state can see, right? Statistics and the state. They're etymologically related for a reason. Once the state can see, it can do good or terrible things. So the chilling scene in Schindler's List, for me, um, is not Amon Goth taking a bead on on a little girl, um, but really the desks awaiting trains that run on time with all the sharpened pencils and the list because it's a bureaucracy now committed to murder. Mm -hmm. Right. But if the bureaucracy runs the other way, a state that can see can also slay smallpox, which we did in 1980. Smallpox was killing 2 million people a year. We slayed the dragon. Mm-hmm. Government can do big things. A state that can see can do big, important things. So this, uh, our conversation that come out around the same time as uh, my conversation with Carol Adrian about her book, Healing a Divided Nation. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that she uh, mentions in the book, which I thought was crazy, is that probably 300 or less people in America, doctors, had actually been involved in a surgery or like seen it or worked on a gunshot wound. Yeah. Um, and that's probably right. <laughs> right. But that had changed a lot by 1865. But right. some of the other things that changed, once you start collecting the data, you can't say a person just died of fever. Right. You have to start like, you have to basically reinvent diagnosis. Well, what did he really die of? What was the, not just a symptom. I mean, we always still have that problem. You know, we, we have, people have depression. We don't, that's a symptom. We don't know what right. actually is wrong. Um, but then you have to say, it's not, what's not the symptom of fever. What's actually, what, what they get the fever from. And so right. this, this pushes medical diagnosis as well. Once you start collecting data. That's, that's exactly right. And so the same thing had been true of Carl Linnaeus, um, mm-hmm. King, kingdom, family, class, genus, all, all that taxonomic system is um, a measure of humans increasing precision and therefore control over the natural world. Well, if we want to control early death, which had burned through us for a billion years, um, you're going to need to sharpen your vocabulary. You're going to sharpen your taxonomy, which is to say your diagnostics. Um, and so you have to, I mean, the, the leading medical man, uh, you know, he was the surgeon general for the continental army under George Washington. Then he goes to, uh, the university of Pennsylvania and founds the leading medical school in the United States. So this Benjamin, is the, Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush is the brightest bulb in the American firmament when it comes to medicine. And when he notices that Philadelphians are living longer he speculates that it's because they're done away with the square hat. They're wearing rounder hats now, or mm. that maybe it's the umbrella. He's not really sure. It's one of those two things. Well, he can't see. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are. Um, you're blind 
without data. You're blind without statistics. Hmm. Virtually all of the threats to mankind are first noticed by coroners and medical examiners. Of course. So the radium girls dipping their brushes in, in, in radium paint and dying of necrotic jaw and everything else. Who's the first to notice that? Well, it's a coroner. They're going to see the pattern in our collective passing. Same is true for SIDS, for AIDS, for traumatic brain injury, for factory fires. Um, across the board, this pattern of our collective dying um, first tells at the morgue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's move on to talk about yeah. uh, that. What? Boy, you have great chapter titles. Chapter two is the math of after, right. which is which begins with the rather careless way in which the American government used to report battlefield casualties. Uh, right. And anyone who studied American revolutionary statistics or the lack of them knows this to be the case because there right. is no real way of keeping tabs on death or wounded right. wounding in the American revolution. And that's right. And it's really hard. And, you know, lately you've mentioned what 750,000 dead in the yeah. civil war, those stats, as you well know, we should probably talk about those have changed a lot lately. Right. Um, people are estimating and re-estimating based on demographic principles. Um, right. And yet uh, that has changed a lot. So could you describe the sort of the early through the civil, even through the civil war, this, right. uh, the difficulty in counting the dead. Well, and you have to, if we back up just a second to talk about this as a conceptual breakthrough, what is the government to the people? And what are the people to the government, mm-hmm. right? What do we expect our government to do? In what sectors of our life do we expect it to act? It is our collective actor. It is our collective will. It is the way by which we do big things like slay smallpox. Mm-hmm. But back then, um, you know, government was unbelievably small and our expectations of what government could and should do were unbelievably small. And among those are, did the government even bother to count or name the people who had died in its name, in its cause? So the government is sending people to war, but they're going to war essentially as citizen soldiers returning to their families, uncounted, unnamed, sometimes thanked. Um, But but the government is, is flying blind again in terms of the patterns of that collective passing. So much as um, diagnostics improves life expectancy and the, the way we die, if you're not collecting casualty statistics, you can't evolve at war. And of course, at war then, you know, what was the number one thing that was killing people in war, you know, all the way through the Civil War certainly is disease. Two thirds mm-hmm. of the soldiers are dying of disease. Um, and so it's pioneers in statistics and in the display of visual information that are taking this, you know, to the generals and saying, you know, you know what you want to do if you want to save men, if you want to have more men to fight more war, clean up the camps, clean up the sinks. People are dying of dysentery because they're drinking poisoned water. I mean, you know, the army of the Potomac is all collectively taking a dump in the Potomac and that water's running right into the White House and eventually kills Willie Lincoln. I wish I wish I had a buck for every time Washington has to explain that you aren't supposed to drink out of the river below where you're pooping in it. Right, right, <laughs> right, exactly. And so um, in the Civil War, um, it really is 
for the first time that not the government, but newspapers see that the culture is demanding information about their boys. Is my, is my son okay? Is he dead on some foreign field? Um, do I need to go? Um, and so the newspaper is filling the gap that the government has left by creating the casualty th list. And so it's for the first time you have in 1839, a steam powered printing press. And now the nation is awash in newspapers. And what do people want to see? What information do they want? Where's my boy? How's my boy? Um, and so for the first time you have these massively long casualty lists. One scholar calls it onomastic density. Just long, long lists of names. And what I make the point that I make in the book is the list is one of the few data forms. We don't think of it that way, but it is one of the few data forms that can convey at once the twin scales of human catastrophe, the enormity of it in mm -hmm. the length of the list, without obscuring the individuality. Everybody hmm. gets a name. So like after Antietam, right. the New York papers the Philadelphia, wherever Ohio papers are going to start printing lists of the Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York dead. And right. you can see the scale of the battle of the, that's, in, right. that's happened in one day. Uh, but you can also see who died uh, from where. So did they tell like the, did they tell the municipalities? How does that work? Or just the yeah, names? So they, they would report by essentially by regiment, which will of course contain right. the state. So sure. here's the, here's the Pennsylvania dead at, and at, at Antietam. But you have to imagine that Americans then are consuming their war in a different way. It mm -hmm. isn't uh, some far off event um, engaged in by mercenary armies with no names. Um, our, our boys, uh, you know, <laughs> our local mayor and our college kids and everybody who works at the clerk's office and all of the farmer's boys uh, all joined up and made a regiment and now I'm consuming war in a different way when I have to read the list. Yeah. Not just my boy's name, but maybe the neighbor's boy's name, or maybe we all got lucky. But it's still somebody's son whose name I'm reading. And it fundamentally changes, I think, the way we consume war if we have to consume it as a list. Mm -hmm. How does this, I mean, I, I'm... This isn't necessarily, this isn't where you went, but you're the historian of mortality. So I, when I, uh, when we lived in Davenport, Iowa, we lived in an apartment in the house of an undertaker. Mm -hmm. uh, he had built in around 1868. And you're going to start smiling because you understand what had happened. He was a prosperous German immigrant cabinet maker in 1859. And right. the war changed his fortunes. Right. Uh, there he was in Davenport, uh, right across from, Basically, at the sort of at the head of navigation for the right. steamboat, Rock Island Railroad, major transportation hub. There's also a huge Confederate POW camp on Rock Island, and right. all of a sudden, cabinet making turned into coffin making, and then undertaking, and it was a huge business. Absolutely. So, how did that change America's ways of dealing with the dead? Did people want their sons sent home to them? Obviously, he made his money from that. Yes, um, absolutely right. And the, the way we need to think of it, you were talking about this before, just how organic and intimate death had always been mm -hmm. uh, for a Victorian family. So in that day and age, you didn't outsource um, your dying, you know, to a hospital or hospice or, you know, some other expertise, uh, other experts. This was something that 
you died in your living room. It was the most important role that you were born to play is to show other people how to do it well, how to bear with grace what you knew was true from when you were born, which is that you, your time is not forever. Um, and so that's the point I was making about the way that they lived with death as the handmaiden to life made life made life sometimes more tragic and sad, but they also savored it more um, because they didn't deny essentially what was coming. But so the civil war creates this massive dislocation in uh, America's uh, way of dying, which is that you died surrounded by your family um, and then were buried in the churchyard or on the property um, Mm -hmm. in in a private cemetery. And so it isn't just the idea of a, a body or of a son dying in the cold, surrounded by strangers, with no one to hear their last words, with no one to ensure that they're on the right, that they're sitting on the right side of the right hand of God, um, and that they're content with their passing. There are no witnesses to that. Um, but the other great problem is for a body to be estranged um, in that day yes. and age and at that distance was just not normal. Most of these kids lived their whole lives within the county boundaries. Sure. Um, and so that's why uh, on both sides, Confederate and Union, they thought you could die of homesickness. They called mm-hmm. it nostalgia. but um, And because it broke the heart, it was so alienating to be so far from home and so far from mama and dad. Um, and the people who cared for them. So the idea of leaving that boy in that foreign ground, in that cold place, um, broke the heart. And on top of all of that, the grave itself was so central to to having your boy forever mm-hmm. um, and to having a place that you could commune with your family forever. Um, so they were not just closer to death and dying, but they continued a relationship to the dead, um, an intimate relationship w- with the dead. And so they needed the body back to make all of that work. This is a, a continuing problem in American wars. I had a, a, a friend who was writing her thesis at Oxford about the Gold Star Mothers. Um, and that grew out of the terrible experiences after the First World War where it was decided that, you know, at government, the government would send the dead back home. And there are numerous instances of people showing up. They hadn't right. gotten notice that their son had died in, right. at, at, in the Meuse-Argonne or at Cantigny. Right. They just came home to their Trenton Row House and found a coffin waiting for them there. Right, right. And, and I think the way we consume the... Uh, the war is central to the wars that we make. Um, if war is an abstraction, there's a reason, right? It became illegal for a while for journalists to take photographs of coffins coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, because then we have to face an unpleasant fact about the war that we are making, is that it is making widows and devastating families. Um, and there's a reason, right, that at the time, the Vietnam Memorial was so... Uh, it was such it was such a contentious design is because it was a list mm-hmm. and and the people who wanted to treat war as an abstraction and to ensure that american military might was projected around the world without 
any sense of the cost of the wars that we make, didn't want it as a list because it conveys the <laughs> twin scales of human catastrophe. Mm-hmm. It doesn't obscure individuality, but it does give you some sense of the enormity mm-hmm. of what was lost there. And so when it was described as a wailing wall for anti-draft riots, yeah, shouldn't it be? Shouldn't there be a place where we come face to face with the cost of the wars that we make? Then we might make better ones. I don't deny there have been good and bad wars, but I know we make better ones if we face what it is that we are making, or at least face the cost of what it is that we are doing. Let's finish up by talking about the power of naming. Sure. The power of counting the dead. Um, yeah. This is not a revelation, shouldn't be a revelation in human history. Um, in fact, the first two chapters of the Jewish Bible begin with naming uh, right. and the power of naming and the power of defining and indeed of counting. Right. Um, so uh, there is something as just as with putting um, grave goods <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an unmarked grave or semi-marked grave in the Burmese jungle. Right. Uh, there, there's something primal about yeah. naming the dead. And there's something also deeply, we know it's dishonorable not to name or count. We know not to name or mark the dead. We That's know right. that we know something underhanded is going on with an, right. unmar- an unmarked grave. No one chooses an unmarked grave for their beloved. Right. Right. And the book, the book is called Count the Dead and it, it is at two, it has two meanings, right? So you count the dead as, as a number, but the dead have to count. Mm-hmm. And so the, the purpose of, of naming, the idea is without a record, you can't have a reckoning. And so human rights organizations around the world, as they developed, realized that the first thing you need to do after any civil war, natural disaster, um, you know, is count the dead and, and name them. And maybe you can't have a reckoning right away. Maybe a ruler who's committed terrible human, human rights abuses doesn't come to justice right away. But the point is that there's no statute of limitation on murder. So you need to name both those who died and those who killed. Because they even, you know, on the one hand, I, I do this for the coldest cases in America, which are murders of the enslaved mm-hmm. and no justice was ever done. But there is a justice, a kind of justice in naming names and mm-hmm. saying this person was killed by this person. This person is a murderer forever. Um, that's a reckoning. And so like um, the clerks and uh, statisticians who went before me, I think the job of the historian is to be a clerk in the reckoning, is to keep the score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you give some examples of that? Right. So um, there's a there's this idea of civil rights cases from you know the 1950s and 1960s. A civil rights worker is gunned down. Um, in their driveway, everybody knows the Klan did it, and you know nobody's ever paid um, ever paid a price for it. Well, there's no statute of limitation on murder. Roll them up. I don't care if they're a hundred. Roll them up. You got to answer. Um, and a historian's job, in part, is to you know light them down through the ages, make them answer. Well, 
what's true for the 1960s is equally true for the 1860s. So I've gone back in time looking at coroner's inquests to find examples of what are human rights abuses um, and bring it to light. There is a justice always in naming names. Like you said, any unmarked grave is a sin against our humanity. Mm-hmm. Our humanity inheres in how we treat the least of these, our brothers and sisters. And so it doesn't really matter if that was a murder, if the murder was yesterday or 150 years ago. If it is unanswered, then there hasn't been a reckoning. So one of my favorite historical societies, if we can call it that, uh, was an organization called Memorial, which is now prohibited in Russia. And it should have been a sign of what was happening. It was a sign to me, at least in 2002, that one of the first things in the new uh, the new maximum leader, we didn't know he was then, uh, didn't like was Memorial. Right. Memorial was simply an organization which wished to mark the sites of mass graves from the Gulag. And by the 1990s, these were popping up everywhere. You know, right. uh, the the Dnieper or something carves out a new channel and all of a sudden you got 5,000 graves. You know, right. 5,000 corpses start popping out of the riverbank. That's um, and or throughout the the north from Murmansk to um, the Bering Strait, you know, you find right. bodies popping up out of the permafrost. Memorial wanted to note those sites and note the sites of the camps. But the very first thing that Putin uh, decided to sort of to turn the screws on right. was uh, Memorial, and I think it was last year, or the year before, sort of really in the preparation, obviously, to this to the war in Ukraine, that Memorial was, I think, is now officially outlawed as an, ex- as an, an examination. And it's, right. and it's worth thinking about how seemingly trivial and innocuous it is right. just, to, to, just to note graves right. and, and to know how that goes, at the, uh, goes against the heart of an authoritarian or totalitarian regime. That's exactly right. So wherever you want to expose a bad faith argument, how you know it's a bad faith argument is they make it, but then they don't want the data to be explored, right? So um, the slaveocrats of the plantation regime said that slavery was a positive good, that we're Christianizing these people. Um, but as soon as Lemuel Shatuck wanted to go in yeah. and take down the names of the enslaved people, how many of your children are living, who are their parents. As soon as he, as the government wanted to explore, um, now you know it's a bad faith argument because they're like, oh, dear God, no, you don't get to do that. Um, yeah. and, but we see it all the time, right? Um, in the failure of the CDC, right, being disallowed from investigating uh, guns in the home as as public health. That's Arthur Kellerman, 1986. He just publishes in the New, New England Journal of Medicine this finding that if you have a gun in the house, you're 43 times more likely to either shoot yourself or someone in the household commits uh, a suicide or there's an accident. That's 43 times more likely than that you use that gun against an intruder. And he was just, those are the facts. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't want to know the facts, Right. Uh, we don't want to be investigated, whether it's the cigarette industry or it's the gun lobby or any of these people, they want to control the data. The same thing was true with Trump and COVID. You know, he didn't actually want us to know how many people were dying because he didn't want it to be as big a deal as it was. Um, so the data has a way of being inconvenient to um, 
bad faith actors. Um, and so what they tend to do is kneecap the statisticians um, and kneecap those who are investigating, who are naming names, because they don't want a reckoning. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, let's finish up by talking about graveyards. Yeah. Um, I walk my dog in the UVA graveyard. It's one of her favorite places. There's uh, groundhogs in it, and those are her enemies, uh, enemies, sworn enemies for the rest of her life. Um, uh, she's tasted their blood once, and she wants to do it again. She really <laughs> does. I'm, I, I, I try to prevent that because I'm not sure she'd win, but um, right. they're there, and um, it's a fascinating place. Uh, I think I think every historian should be excited by a graveyard. UVA graveyard is really interesting because you can see the entire history of the institution in multiple different ways. Right. Uh, recently discovered is the enslaved graveyard, right. uh, which was there. No one knew where, but only really discovered in 2006, 2007. And what's really gets back to what we're talking about is we have a list of people. Usually we have a list of persons in it. Right. All of them who have names only have one name, a first name. Right. And we don't know where they are. I mean, right. they're just, just a list of, and we now have a ground radar map of, of possible graves. They might all be graves. Most of them are, but it's a list of people. Up the hill, over the ways, is the Confederate Cemetery. What's a Confederate Cemetery doing at UVA? Well, uh, in the South, during the Civil War, uh, not a lot of big buildings. So every big public building becomes uh, with it in the train ride of a, a battlefield becomes a public hospital. Right. And you can see the various tides of the Confederacy in that graveyard. You can see uh, the seven days. You can see people dying for months after the seven days. You right. can see people dying for, you know, from Jackson's Valley campaign. You can start to tra- trace it. You can see, People from Texas and Louisiana who couldn't get sent home, probably, as well as lots of people from Virginia. All these guys are actually dying in Thomas Jefferson's rotunda right. and, in, and in the buildings around the lawn. Um, and they are then buried there. Um, but as I was, I think, said, saying to you before we started, you see the Lost Cause Monument. You see these gravestones. You realize these are really fresh gravestones. Right. And you realize also looking at the names on the lost on the on the sort of traditional mind, there are a lot more names than tombstones. Right. And you realize there's actually a thousand bodies in that place, and not all of them are marked. Only right. uh, maybe 10, 15, 20% at most are marked. Yeah. But then you've got the rest of the the servants of the university going back to um, Thomas Wurtenbaker. Uh, no, not Thomas Ward, but but Thomas Jefferson Wurtenbaker, the famous Southern historian, his father, right. the first Wurtenbaker, the first librarian in the university, Basil Leno Gildersleeve. Talk about the right. lost cause, you know. Yeah. Uh, basically, in many ways, uh, not uh, an apologist for slavery. Also, however, it has to be said, uh, probably the most, in some ways, to this day, the most prominent Greek philologist in American history, uh, right. who's the, the founder of the classics department, Johns Hopkins gives out the first PhDs in classics. But then you see all the way marching through to the modern era. You see the history of the institution and people's relationship with the institution. I just, I mean, I could spend, I spent a long time there, but you see fascinating relationships there when you look at that. Well, and I'll just say, if I went to an alien planet, I wanted to know who they were. Yeah. I would go to their graveyard. What would you look for? So I've described some of the things I see. What right. would you What would you look for? I, but I would look for both of the things that you're talking about. So, what, what are, are you building? What do you build monuments to? 
Yeah. You're building a monument to the dead, but you're also building a monument to a way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're building a place for us to reflect on our, mortal- on our mortality and what we should do with our limited time on earth. Mm-hmm. And what you most want to do is watch that change over time. Mm-hmm. What you most hope is that it changes over time, that it becomes more democratic, that right, there is um, the cities of the dead are mm-hmm. cities like any other. The good real estate is going to, you know, our, our inequalities in life are going to be re, you know, uh, inscribed on the landscape in the inequalities, location, 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 who's buried on the hill, who's under the biggest monument. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we change over time, does that become more democratic? Does everybody get a name? Does everybody get a grave? Does everybody get a marker? Does everybody get remembered? Mm-hmm. Um, it is the measure of a functioning democracy for us to be equal in the land beyond the veil. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I'll know that we're equal. In that's It's difficult when people also have sort of the crematorium niches now. Obviously, this is yeah. what's what I see actually going on in the university is that UVA has decided that it's this is a way to make money. Yeah. Uh, and so they've expanded the graveyard. There are rules about how long you serve, you know, your relationship as an alumni. There are lots of cremation niches, which are good right. business. They take up less space. So you can you have lots of niches in the wall now. The wall can be cremation. I hope I'm not saying too cynical. I, I know someone bureaucrat at UVA made this decision. Um, but what I also see is a relation, a different relationship with the institution. So there are that you can see uh, up until the early aughts, uh, there are people dying who, uh, in their eighties and nineties, one of them whom is was sort of an eminence Greece for several presidents university, founded the Virginia Colonial Records Project, president of the very important president of the board at Monticello. It says servant of the university right. on his grave. Mm-hmm. No one would put that on their grave now, I, and I don't right. doubt that he was, and that was important right, right. to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, but and I think that in some ways that's a very lovely and noble thing to put. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I know that even people in their late fifties would no more dream of putting that on their tomb than they would of flying to the moon using only their arms for power. And and the I think the point that I'm making is that evolution is a healthy one. If 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 the way if the way we're dying is changing, yeah, that can be a good or a bad thing, but it's certainly a measure. Show me how you show me how you died as yes. a collective society. Show me how you died and I'll show you how you lived. Yeah. So if we now have more people who want to be essentially turned into compost, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they, or they want or they want to tuck into a mushroom bag and have somebody plant a tree. Mm-hmm. Or they want to, there's there's these new essentially giant orb glass orbs and you can be buried and the gases um, from 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 your body will light up a tree um, and so the fact that we're having a discussion about about how we want to pass um, is healthy that's what a healthy society should should be doing um, and so if that's evolving. I think we must be morally evolving too. Well, my guest today has been Stephen Berry. He's the Gregory Professor of the Civil War Era at the University of Georgia. And his book, his latest book, is Counting the Dead. Stephen Berry, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much, Al. It was a pleasure. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. 
John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 